0: Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: I'm Tony Coelho, and I'm the author of the ADA. I am totally committed to supporting Hillary Clinton for president.
2: Welcome to Disability Matters with your host, Joyce Bender. All comments, views, and opinions expressed on this show are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. Now the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Bender.
3: And welcome to the show, everyone. Hope you're having a great day. And you know this month is National Disability Employment Awareness Month and National Disability Mentoring Day. So what a great month to celebrate employment, the employment of people with disabilities. And I have to say a special shout-out to my good friend, Yoshiko Dar. Yoshiko, it's all about your leadership and what you're doing for young people, and we all love you. And you're all wondering, gee, I hear you say that all the time on the show, and that's because I will never forget Justin Dart. So, okay, wow, what a great show we have today, and it is all about accessibility. We are so honored to have the Senior Accessibility Specialist from the United States Access Board Tim Cregan. Tim, welcome to the show.
4: Welcome, Joyce, and it's good to be here.
3: Well, so you all know Tim is very well known in the disability community for his work at the U.S. Access Board and a disability rights leader known nationally for his work. So let's start here. Uh, For our listeners throughout the world, uh, Tim. What led you to become involved in the disability community?
4: Okay, Joyce, um, that's a good question. And I guess the answer would be follow your passion, do what you know. And um, what I know as an individual with a lifelong disability. I was born with hearing loss, I was mainstreamed in public schools, and I was mainstreamed in college and also law school. I knew throughout my life that this was just an aspect of my human condition. It wasn't until I had been a practicing attorney for a number of years that I even became aware of the need for advocacy on behalf of persons with disabilities. So. I made a change in my career. I had been a litigator in court for some 15 years, and I had dealt with that. Um, and I had come to a point where I felt like I had done what I wanted to do litigation-wise. I had done bench trials. I had done hearings, motion hearings, and I had even done some appellate work. And I wanted to make a change. And that was when I came across... Um, the advocacy organization Self-Help for Hard-of-Hearing People, as it was called then. This was in the early 2000s. It's now uh, changed its name to Hearing Loss Association of America. Um, I contacted them because I read about their work online, and I was interested in talking to them. So I came in and met with them, and I actually started volunteering for them. I did volunteer work for them for a number of months, and they liked me so much they called me in and said, well look, we should use someone with your skills. We think that um, you would be a good spokesman. You certainly are living what it's like for a person with a disability. You've been in the competitive real world. You know what it's like to be out there, and you can help our membership who are persons with hearing loss, you can help us understand what it takes to be competitive out in the real world and what ev- resources are available out there for you.
3: Well, you know what? Remember what you said, follow your passion? I guess that's exactly what you did. Uh, and we're lucky that you did. And thank you, because, you know, not everyone... That goes that, that is a person with a disability becomes an advocate, um, and you did. So that brings us to the U.S. Access Board, and I am surprised that when I talk to people, they don't know what that is and they don't know why it was formed. So, Tim, how about if you tell our listeners, what is the U.S. Access Board and when and why was it formed?
4: Certainly. Certainly, Joyce. First of all, the U.S. Access Board is an independent federal agency that promotes equality for people with disabilities through leadership in accessible design and in the development of accessibility guidelines and standards. We were created in 1973, and the purpose was to ensure access to federally funded facilities. Um, Originally, what had happened was the Architectural Barriers Act had been passed, and the concern was that there was really no accountability. Even though there were uh, requirements for access, no one was really following them, there was no real oversight on that issue. So, the Access Board was created to provide that role. And um, as time went on, we were granted more authority to develop uh, standards and guidelines on the built environment, transit vehicles, telecommunications equipment, medical diagnostics equipment, and information technology. Uh, I personally happened to be uh, lucky enough to be involved in the information and communications technology aspect of our program. So um, we are a very uh, wide-ranging agency. We have three main divisions. We have uh, Executive Director's Office, the Office of General Counsel, and the um, Information and Technical Assistance Office, which is what I'm a part of. We also have a section which does compliance and enforcement, enforcing the provisions of the Architectural Barriers Act. Uh, Those are, in the case of a federal facility, such most commonly a post office, someone has a problem with physical access to the post office. Um, This often comes up in a situation where, let's say, the post office is being uh, rebuilt or remediated and there's a problem with access. So we would receive a complaint, and then we have compliance experts within the office who uh, work with the facility and the affected individuals to come to a resolution and to make sure that the facility is upgraded to meet the architectural guidelines. Most of the rest of the office in uh, technical information and services, we provide technical assistance, and we uh, assist in the drafting of new standards and guidelines.
3: Well, you know, I know there uh, is legislation going around to try to amend that, uh, but I also know the disability community um, is going to fight that because, you know... We need access, and we need someone to enforce access, and uh, that's what the ADA is all about. That's really what it was all about. So how about you, Tim? How did you become appointed to the U.S. Access Board? Uh, How did you get there, and what is the composition of the board?
4: Okay. Um, Certainly, Joyce. I'd like to make a distinction right now um, between the Access Board, which is a 25-member committee that heads up the board and the staff that supports them. I'm a member of the staff that supports the Access Board. I uh, got this position by applying through USAjobs.gov. Actually, um, there was a listing for an accessibility specialist, and they were looking for someone who had experience in uh, public speaking and legal writing and uh, technology. So um, I applied to the USA Jobs process, and I was fortunate enough to be selected. Um, so I'm a member of the staff. The staff of the Access Board, there are 30 people, and we're headed by the executive director, Mr. David Capose. Um Mr. Kaposi reports to the members of the Access Board themselves. The members of the Access Board There's 25 members, and they're composed of 12 federal agencies at the level of assistant secretary or above. And then there are 13 members of the board who are public members who are appointed by the President of the United States. In order to be considered for appointments to the board, the public members apply to uh, the board through the White House. And the, uh, for anyone who might be interested, the link on the White House website is https: colon forward slash forward slash apply, A-P-P-L-Y dot dot gov. So that is the process by which a public, uh, a publicly appointed member of the Access Board starts their process towards becoming a member of the board. Uh, they submit an application and then it is reviewed by the White House, and if the White House selects them, then the individual is appointed to the board. Um, for four-year terms. The staff has no input, and it's a completely separate process. It's completely within the discretion and control of the White House. The agency members are appointed from uh, the following agencies, the Department of Commerce, the Department of Defense, Department of Education, General Services Administration, Health and Human Services, HUD, Department of the Interior, Department of Justice, Department of Labor, Transportation, the U.S. Postal Service, and the Veterans Administration. Um, The appointees from those agencies are typically at the level of assistant secretary or above. Uh, The purpose of the board is to function as a coordinating body among the federal agencies and to directly represent the public, particularly persons with disabilities. So what they do is they advise and formulate recommendations to the staff in terms of areas they would like us to address, um, what they would like us to uh, focus on on a particular issue, and um, let's say there's divergent points of view on how to approach a particular topic, so we would make recommendations. So then we follow out the directives, and anything we do, is presented to the board for their approval, and nothing goes out before the board members approve it uh, and vet it.
3: Oh, well, and so the board would go to your the staff in reference to even policy issues, then they would go and present different issues to the staff?
4: Uh, yes, What what they do is, The staff obviously maintains contact um, in... Uh, among stakeholders for for issues for that the board looks at, such as access to physical space or access to technology, and as issues arise and they become relevant, the uh, staff will bring it to the attention of the board. Um, sometimes the information is just you know it's information only. Sometimes it's it's an action item on behalf of the board. So, for instance, let's say. Um, during the course of a rulemaking, let's say that the board has been authorized to develop technical standards or guidelines, for example, uh, the Section 508 standards is something we're working on now. We, uh, When we start the process, the first thing we did in this particular instance was we formed an advisory committee of uh, stakeholders, and that advisory committee of stakeholders met for two years, and then they issued a report of recommendations, which they presented to the board. The board then directed the staff to take that report of recommendations, that TITAC report, and to turn it into regulatory language for uh, review, which we did. Once the uh, Access Board members looked at the proposed regulations, they had us publish it in the Federal Register just to notify um, the world at large that this was what we had seen and this was the information we had received as recommendations in the first step in the rulemaking process. So every step along the way, when we get input from anywhere, um, anything that we propose or suggest, is only done after consultation and the approval of the board.
3: Well, I'll tell you what, that is a lot of information, but it is always important to understand the procedure, so I'm glad you went over that. But right now, we're going to get ready to go to break. We're talking to Tim Cregan, the Senior Accessibility Specialist for the United States Access Board. This is Joyce Bender, America's Voice, where disability matters at voiceamerica.com. Don't go away. We'll be right back.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Since
1: 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies.
2: If you have a question or comment, call in toll free at 1
1: 866 472 5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters. Here's Joy Spender.
3: Hey, welcome back, everyone. If you just joined us, we're talking to Tim Cregan, the Senior Accessibility Specialist for the United States Access Board, um, who, by the way, I heard Speak, an event that was put on, and as soon as I heard him speak, I said, oh, I want him on my radio show. That's how that (laughs) happened. But anyway, Tim, um, when you were talking about your background in technology, would you mind explaining what the Telecommunications and Electronic and Information Technology Advisory Committee, known as TI, TAC. What is that? You know, what the heck is that and what is your role?
4: Okay, Joyce. yeah, the TAC committee, as you just explained, was the federal advisory committee that the U.S. Access Board convened when we began our review and updating of the Section 508 standards for electronic information technology and for the Section 255 guidelines for telecommunications accessibility, that was the name of the stakeholder advisory group that we convened. We had 42 participating entities, including entities from consumer groups, industry, Academia, and four participants from foreign governments. We had Japan, Australia, Canada, and the European Union. The whole group worked together very closely for a period of two years, having meetings every other month where we talked about what the existing accessibility standards and guidelines said, and how they should be revised to reflect changes in technology and changes in practice. It was very good for a number of reasons. First of all, when you get colleagues in a room together, and you're all talking about a similar topic, each person or entity brings their own perspective to bear on a problem. So for example, for those who were in the commercial sector, for for example, providing telecommunication services, they were aware of some of the technological constraints and issues that they faced. Whereas uh, representatives from consumer groups, for example, who are representing the needs of individuals with disabilities, they could speak to their own experience in using technology and what were some of the shortcomings and what were some of the pluses that they found in using this. Um, over the period of time, we, we used to joke when we do advisory committees that, you know, people start off as strangers, and by the end, we have them holding hands, singing, <laughs> But it's a very, very uh, intense, very collaborative process, and we find that it really, really helps to produce a very useful set of recommendations to us. So we're very grateful to the members of the community. and um, The members of the committee produced a wonderful piece of work, the tar report, which we then used as a basis for the beginning of our first draft towards uh, proposed amendments to the standards and guidelines. That uh, Advanced Notice of Proposed Rulemaking was called. That was published in... 2010. Then we received over 330 comments in response to that first draft. Um, the exciting thing was, is during the course of the TITAC, we actually had a live wiki, um, first time that had ever been used in government rulemaking, and it was exciting. We had people contributing round the clock on all sorts of technological issues. Um, With when the response to the first ANPRM came out, like I said, it was over 330 comments. People were really, really interested in this, and it really helped promote the discussion. and Also, I think the development of public awareness on this issue, what was possible technologically and what people were looking for. Based on the comments we received, we revised it in 2011. And put out a new, a second notice of proposed rulemaking, um, which was then picked up by the European Union. The European Union used our 2011 advanced notice of proposed rulemaking uh, as the basis for developing their own accessibility standards, which they published in 2014 under the uh, EN 301549 uh, name for their accessibility standards. We then put out a notice of proposed rulemaking, which is the next-to-last step in rulemaking, called the 2015 NPRM, so we received uh, approximately 166 comments in response to that proposed rulemaking, and based on those comments, we have now prepared a draft final rule, which we are in the process of submitting to the Office of Management and Budget for final review. Once um, the Office of Management Budget completes their review, um, and it's to approve it, then the rule will be published in the Federal Register as a final rule. We hope that that will be completed by the end of this calendar year.
3: Well, you know what? That then brings me to the question everyone asks me about. Here it is. I've got to ask you about this. But what is the current state? For Section Five Hundred Eight of the Rehab Act.
4: What is the current state? Yeah, when well, do you think
3: it is when do you think that will really happen?
4: Well, um, as I as I explained, the original standards which we're talking about, which are which is the law at the present time, those standards were published in two thousand. And those standards are organized around categories of technology, in other words, calling things a name. It's either software, or it's hardware, or its telecommunications product. One of the things that the committee made very clear to us is, as time has gone on and technology has developed, those distinctions between something what is called is not as important as what something does. So one of the things that we've recommended over the years is that we approach the discussion of accessibility by functionality. What does something do? What does it do as a piece of equipment, and how does it interact with the functionality of a human being who's trying to use it. One of the things that I've noticed myself when I talk about this issue is, earlier on, when I would talk to audiences about the concept of disability and accessibility and how that comes to trying to make something usable by a person with a disability, the conversation will often sort of go along the medical model line, and there would be a discussion of, well, kind of like, what is this person's medical diagnosis? What is their history? And really, the more productive way to approach the topic is to say, what is the functionality that we're talking about here? So if I'm in the business world, and I need to be able to communicate over a two-way voice device, we'd call it a telephone, or you can call it a smartphone, or you can call it video conferencing or whatever you call it, I need to be able to communicate in that environment. How do I do that? Accessibility allows you to say, well, what is it that you're intending to do? And so you're intending to communicate in that arena. Accessibility basically says, let's take that information and let's put it in an alternative format. If someone needs to see the oral information presented textually, we can do that. We can have simultaneous captioning. Or if someone needs it rendered into American Sign Language, we can do that. Or if someone needs to have it produced in tactile format, we can do that. That's really what accessibility boils down to. It's a built-in solution that allows the technology functions to be used by the individual with a disability. And in that sense, <laughs> you participate in the business world, you participate in your daily work, you produce the project you need to produce, and your disability really becomes a non-issue. Because all you're focusing on is, you know, my boss wants me to produce this report by the end of the week, no problem. If I produce that report by typing it on a hard keyboard, great. If I produce that report by dictating it, that's fine, too. If I produce that report by other means, as long as I get the work done, that's really all that matters. And that's really what accessibility boils down to. It's a way to provide access to that information and that technology so that it's seamless.
3: Okay. And, uh, Tim... What I'm getting to is, I know for you this is hard to believe, but businesses, federal contractors, this is how they say it to me. They say to me, 508, when do you think that will really be enforced? And I say, well, the final rule, you know, will be coming out. And they say, yeah, yeah. I mean, but when do you think we'll have to, when do you think this will come down that, you know, everything has to be accessible, meaning website uh, you know everything digital, no matter what it is, when do you think that will happen and if someone would ask you it just the way I do, what would you say?
4: Well, I would say um, there's different laws that we 're talking about here that cover different areas of jurisdiction. So, as far as the federal government is concerned, Section 508 applies to federal agencies. So, when federal agencies procure, use, develop, or maintain information and communication technology, they have to make it accessible according to Section 508 standards. That's federal agencies. And someone may say, yeah, but I'm not a federal agency. Well, then, if you provide products for a federal agency, you sell to a federal agency, the products that you produce for them are going to have to be accessible. That's that's one aspect of it. In the private sector, you have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which govern Title II entities, which are state and local governments. I'm sure that your viewers and your uh, listeners are aware of the recent uh, Department of Justice Supplemental Notice of Proposed Rule Measuring on Web Accessibility. Uh, The comment period, I believe, concludes later this month that is going to also tremendously impact the accessibility of websites, certainly for state and local governments, and then uh, there's talk that in the future the Department of Justice will also be addressing Title III entities, which are places of public accommodation. So I would say that the smart money would be to start preparing for this now, because it's going to be the law soon in the next several years. Um, We we also have uh, many states and local governments already provide accessibility because it's really a question of getting to their customers, their members of the public who are using that state website as more and more people become dependent on a website presence and more and more brick-and-mortar locations close, often the online presence is the only way people have access to services. So it's in the interest of not only uh, state and local governments, but also places of public accommodation, to cater to the needs of their customers and their constituents.
3: And the private sector. yes. Well, what I said uh, whenever I had someone from Pete on the show is I said, the question was, uh, well, when do you think this will happen? And the answer was, if I were you, I'd get this going now. Because when it happens, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be an impact. I would not wait until that happens because we know it is going to. I would start now because, you know, that's a big process to make sure all of your, the web, the internal applications, the uh, facing applications to the public, to make sure they are all accessible. So, um, I don't know why someone would not start now doing that.
4: I agree, Joyce. Absolutely. And we have a lot of technical assistance here at the Access Board. We're always, uh, we answer phone calls all the time. You can send email inquiries to us, uh, 508 at access-board.gov, if you have any questions. Um, You can also contact uh, me. My email is Cregan, C-R-E-A-G-A-N, at access-board.gov. Always happy to hear from people, always happy to answer questions.
3: That is a great offering. Uh, I hope you all understood that, that you can contact him at the Access Board, because it seems to be a fuzzy understanding, you know? Like, there, just as you said before, there's the Access Board, then there's the staff, such as you. You know, there's 508, but then there's a provision that impacts the private sector from this new ruling you're talking about with the uh, Justice Department. I mean, there are so many parts of this, but I just want to mention accessibility. You know, someone was talking to me the other day about digital accessibility, and they said, oh, yeah, we have to be accessible for people who are blind. I said, hold on. You know, people who are deaf, people with a learning disability, people with an intellectual disability, people with speech recognition issues, uh, mobility, I mean, it isn't just one thing. So when you are working to make sure you are accessible, you have to look at everything. Isn't that correct, Tim?
4: Yes, that's that's true, Joyce. I'd just like to take a moment and just mention there's actually, we've talked about two different laws here. The one that the U.S. Access Board is working on is Section 508 of the Rehabilitation Act. The law that the Department of Justice is revising is the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. So that's two separate acts which apply to two different jurisdictions.
3: Yeah, and I'm really glad you explained that because I can see there's such confusion, because when people are talking to people in the private sector, frequently they'll say, well, wait till 508 is being enforced. But as you pointed out, that would be for the federal government. The Department of Justice, this would be uh, the, uh, you know, with the ADA, that would impact the private sector.
4: Yes, it would. It would.
3: I think there just isn't clarity because there has just not been uh, enough education. And you know what I'm going to do, Tim? I, Of course, this show is archived uh, on my website and at Voice America so that people can hear it again. But I am going to be marketing to people to go to this show for the, all of this information and education, you know, just to set things And I really appreciate you explaining that, you know, and differentiating the one for the other. Um, I really do appreciate that. But right now, we're going to go to break. If you just joined us, we're talking to Tim Cregan, the Senior Accessibility Specialist at the United States Access Board, educating everyone, including me. We'll be right back.
2: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
1: Since 1985, Bender Consulting Services has served as a national leader in advancing employment of people with disabilities, including veterans with disabilities, with private sector companies, and federal government agencies. If you have a question or comment, call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now, please welcome back the host of Disability Matters, here's Joyce Spender.
3: Hey, welcome back, everyone. If you just joined us, we're talking to Tim Cregan, the Senior Accessibility Specialist at the United States Access Board. And I'm so glad that I had him on because, really, it's an education for me Um, And now I will have answers for people in the private sector and in the government. But specifically, uh, they can listen to this show or they can go to the U.S. Access Board, you know, for any questions that that they may have. And, Tim, we were talking about, uh, you know, accessibility, digital accessibility. Uh, Your opinion, from a disability rights perspective, how far do you think we've come?
4: Oh, well, thank you, uh, Joyce. That's a a great question. Um, If I can just personalize this for a minute, when I started off, I remember as a person with a disability, I had a hearing loss, and so the assistive technology that I started off with, which was my hearing aid. At that time, I was in kindergarten, and I was fitted with a hearing aid, which was essentially a body model. So it was about the size of a pack of cigarettes. It had a cord that was probably, I don't know, 12 inches long, and it went up to my ear. And I remember that it... Couldn't run or play or do much of anything while I was wearing it because it was very fragile and it was very likely to break. <laughs> um, then, uh, wow, I can't p- even.
3: I don't even didn't even remember that. Wow, that 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 was cumbersome to say the least. Yeah, we have come a long way. Go ahead. What happened? Yep.
4: So then, um, when I was in when I was in uh, junior high school and in high school, uh, hearing aids had been reduced because technology was advancing and everything was shrinking. So my hearing aids went from being a body aid to an in the ear model, which is what I'm wearing today. And um, as I went on through uh, through life, I had noticed more and more that. I started off as a person with a hearing loss thinking that I was the only person in the world who had a hearing loss because I didn't know anybody else who had a hearing loss. I went to a mainstream school. I didn't have any classmates or anybody I knew who I knew had a disability. And it wasn't until I got out in the working world and you would meet people who wore eyeglasses, but nobody ever considered that a disability. You know, people thought of a disability as somebody who was maybe couldn't walk, that was a disability, but everything else was just kind of like living your life. What I noticed as I've come along is that our perception of disability has become much more informed and much more enlightened. People realize that a disability, in the sense that your functionality is different uh, from those of others, could change at any time. If I slip and fall and break a bone, I should be using crutches. Once that heals, I may be off crutches, but I may be using glasses or hearing aids. So the modern statement that we're all temporarily able-bodied, I think, is the best way to approach it. Because it's part of the human condition. Being able to see or hear or walk or understand material to process information, those all vary from person to person. And I think what we've learned over the last 30 years or so is that each of us contributes and each of us are an important part of society. So whatever we can do through the use of technology or programmatic support to enable all of us to fully participate in society is important because it benefits all of us.
3: You know what? That is so true. And by the way, I say that to people all the time about being temporarily able-bodied. And and you know what? I, I cannot believe how many people do not want people to know they wear a hearing aid. Now, when I had my accident, you know, my listeners know I have epilepsy and that I had an accident at a movie theater where I had a seizure and hit the floor so hard I fractured my skull and ended up having life-saving brain surgery. But in addition, from that fall, I dislodged the bones in my right inner ear. Therefore, I have a 60 to 70% hearing loss on my right side, and I am hard of hearing. You know, I, I would tell everyone, I'd say, oh, yeah, I'm hard of hearing here. I wear this hearing aid. And people would say, wow, I can't believe, you know, you tell people that. And, of course, they were even more shocked to tell someone I live with epilepsy. But, you know, I can't understand that. Just as you said, people wear glasses, but they don't feel that they have a disability, no no matter how strong of a lens they need. Uh, But, you know, also... When you have hard of hearing, you know, many people, oh, well, you're hard of hearing. And you know what? I can't believe there's such a stigma with that that there are people that pretend they can hear because they don't want people to know.
4: Right, absolutely. I remember um, my father, who was in his early 90s at the time, had uh, never worn hearing aids. He wore reading glasses, but he never wore hearing aids. And I remember telling him, Dad, you really need to get hearing aids. And he goes, why? I'm not old. <laughs> and I just looked at him. I was like, I was like seriously? seriously, Dad, you're sitting here talking to your son who's worn hearing aids his whole life, and you're telling me you don't wear hearing aids because you're not old. It doesn't have anything to do with age, Dad. It doesn't have anything to do with strength. It doesn't have anything to do with anything except the fact that just like you'd wear eyeglasses, you wear hearing aids to help you hear. So... A lot, of, a lot of it, Joyce, I agree with you, is perception, and I applaud you for speaking up and just being very upfront about your situation, because I think people respond to that very well. I think if you just say to them, for instance, in my own case, what I'll say is, excuse me, I have a hearing loss. Could you look at me when you speak? It doesn't cost them any money. All it is is just saying, you know, common courtesy. Please look at me when you speak, or excuse me, would you mind repeating that, please? Um, And I think, you know, 99% of the time, people are more than happy to comply. I think it's really a question of awareness and people um, thinking about it. A lot of times when I speak to audiences, what I'll say is, Oh, we don't have disabilities. You know, our arms are just too short to read the paper anymore. You know, when you get when you get uh, far sighted as <laughs> right. you go along in life, right. you know your arms aren't too lo- too long. Or I say, isn't it a shame how everybody mumbles these days? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> they're just mumbling on there. It. It's nothing wrong with me. Everybody mumbles. So you know, it's all it's it's all relative. Um, I. I Points that I always make too, that the audience enjoys, is I'll say everybody has SFD. All of us have it. And everybody looked at me like, "What? What? what's the FFD? And I said, well, those of you who are married, particularly, you have spousal frequency deafness. And I said, it happened to me. My wife says something, and I go completely deaf. And then later she'll say, I told you this. And I'll say, no, I swear to God, I did not hear you say that. I, you
3: know, so it's part of the
4: human condition.
3: Oh, that's pretty good. I'll be remembering that. I will. And I just want to say, uh, actually, I'll be going up there next week to uh, NTID. I just was there a couple weeks ago because I was honored to be appointed to the National Advisory Group, which is like the board, for the National Technical Institute for the Deaf. And it always upsets me, you know, when people tell me, about the stigma and how they're treated, you know, when they are deaf or when they're a person that is uh, hard of hearing. And, you know, that's something we have to stop. We have to change that. We do. We have to change that because it doesn't matter. The person still has great capabilities. It's just a person with a hearing loss or a person who is deaf.
4: Absolutely. And what has always surprised me is when when. People hear that someone has a disability, they automatically make assumptions. Oh, well, then you can't do X, Y, or Z. So, for example, um, for those of you who uh, like instrumental music, particularly percussion, a very famous percussionist, a woman named Evelyn Glennie. She is a Scottish percussionist. She's profoundly deaf. She's won Grammy awards for her playing. People just can't understand well, how in the world can you possibly play a marimba, for example, and she manages she uses uh the 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 feeling of the through the through the floor and through um her body sensations and she's just really really practiced and really really skilled it's It's like anything else if you really want to do it, you'll find a way to make it work and I think that when people pay attention to the things that people can really do, it's just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, when you think about the uh, Nobel Prize winner um, from England that they just they did a movie about this past year, who is, um, oh gosh, Joyce, you'll have to help me out. I'm blanking on his name.
3: Um, what movie was this? I'm sorry? What movie was this you're talking about? I'm talking about, he's an English
4: physicist. Oh, yes,
3: yeah, Stephen, um, Hawking. Stephen, Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, thank you,
4: thank you. He's a, he's a perfect example. Imagine if we didn't have the benefit of his information and knowledge. But thanks to the technology that enables him to communicate with the rest of us, we get the benefit of all his wonderful work. So, you know, all of us contribute in different ways, and it's just wonderful that um, as technology has made more and more content available to us, we can all benefit from it.
3: Yes, that is so true. Well, listen, uh, what message would you like to leave with our listeners today, Tim?
4: Um, What I would just encourage everyone is to... Always continue making that effort, making that opportunity to learn, making that opportunity to reach out to others, to communicate. Don't be afraid to ask for help if you need it. Um, Don't ever give up and keep pushing.
3: Yes, I so agree. And remember, you know, listen, listening right now to Tim, attorney and working in the federal government for the U.S. Access Board. A person who is also hard of hearing hasn't stopped him and look how successful he is. Never, ever be ashamed. Disability is just part of who you are. Tim, thank you so very much for being with us today.
4: Thank you, Joyce. I've enjoyed being here.
3: Well, we've enjoyed having you. And I want to remind my listeners of one other thing. Don't forget, don't forget to vote. Don't forget to vote. You've got to vote. You've got to vote. Remember what Justin Dart said, vote as if your life depends upon it, because it does. We end every show with a quote, and the show today is, it's not just about disabled users being able to access your website. It's about everyone being able to access